0: Welcome to Sharp Talk, the regular podcast of E-Sharp magazine. Go to e for free access to all the podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Phil Hogan. Phil Hogan is the European Commissioner for Agriculture and Rural Development. Phil, I'd like us to talk about three or four things in the course of this uh, podcast. Um, you're obviously in charge of the Common Agricultural Policy, so I'd like your take on how the CAP, as it's called, has evolved over the, since the late 70s or the 80s to where we stand now. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that there's a new maybe budget negotiation around the corner, multi-annual budget negotiation, and what are your kind of prognostics for that? And then, last but not least, Brexit. Obviously, Ireland is very uh, concerned about Brexit, and I'd like to talk to you about that. So, first things first: um, how has the CAP evolved in the past forty years? You know, people have in their minds, you know, this image of all the, the rhetoric in the in the some of the anti-European media, uh, especially in the UK, of you know, butter mountains and wine lakes and all the rest of it. Is how much of a caricature is that? Well, I
1: suppose the Common Agricultural Policy, Paul, started out in 1962 as a policy to help people to overcome the ravages of the Second World War, uh, where people were starving in many uh, countries in the European Union. We hadn't enough food, believe it or not, right. to be able to feed all of the citizens of Europe. That might find you people might find that hard to believe today, when we see such high quality food uh, and, and plenty, we, uh, plenty of it, <laughs> and we can even export. We're the largest exporter of food now in the world, f- for the first time in the last year. Oh right. And uh, we have great traceability, we have uh, all of the systems in place to make sure, as far as possible, that it is safe and that it is good. High quality, and over the last course, you were right uh, in painting the picture that policy has evolved and it has gone from these butter mountains and wine lakes and mid lakes into a, a, a very effective competitive global uh, particul- a global policy and therefore we have very little product in storage. We have some skim, milk powder in storage at the moment. But from time to time we do this, but nothing like what we had years ago where it was an enormous waste of money. Right. Uh, so we have moved uh, moved with the times and modernised the policy, and that has given us €137 billion Euro of exports uh, right across the world at the moment and uh, and rising fast.
0: Well, since you mentioned money, I mean, also back in the sevent- late 70s, early 80s, you know, um, the CAP was taking up by far the line share that you budget at the time, almost 3 Quarter, that I think I'm writing saying, mm. correct, if, if I'm wrong, mm. now is still hovering around 40%. Is that is that correct? How is that kind of high proportion justified in 2018?
1: Well, because of the fact that the policy was set up for to deal with the starvation of some peoples in the Europe, of course, it was the only fully funded EU policy in the Europe for many, many uh, years, and from 1962 right up to 1980s, this was the case where over 70% of the budget was devoted to agriculture. Agriculture is still the only fully funded policy of the European Union uh, and uh, it, it 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 is hovering around 34 35%. Okay, okay. So it has gone down a lot I- as research and innovation and uh, and uh, all of the various other policies in relation to both employment and economic activity uh, have taken more centre stage and the social pillar of course is a very important pillar as well. So all of these have spread the budget in a more in a different direction. And, of course, uh, we're now into budget time again for the 2020 period, and, of course, everybody wants a slice of the agricultural budget again.
0: Well, I've got to come to you about that in a second, Phil. Before we come to that, I mean, but how does, I mean, I think nobody would contest the need to support farmers. They they have quite a a difficult existence, especially the small ones, obviously, and also the issue about food food security. We can't be too Mm. blasé about that, uh, complacent about that. But having said that, what is the the case for the rationale for a a centralised European-wide agricultural policy as opposed to national policy? Well,
1: it has been hugely successful in the way it's organised, because now we have a competitive agricultural industry where we're generating a lot of jobs. There are 44 million people directly and indirectly associated with agriculture and food, by far the largest employer in the European Union. We wouldn't have those jobs in rural areas were it not for agriculture and food, but we have to be more innovative and do more on the bioeconomy and all this. We're also expecting farmers to do more on public goods. If we don't would have would our farmers in a rural public, goods? public goods. If we don't have our farmers living in rural areas and be able to stay living in rural areas and survive, well then we won't be able to get them to do the work we want them to do on environment and climate and water quality and biodiversity. Right. So if we don't have a farmer, we want a product if we don't have a farmer, we won't have anybody out there in the r- in the rural areas to do all of this lovely work that we need them to do that we always take for granted in relation to our landscapes and nature.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, as you said, there's a, a this so-called seven-year um, uh, multi-annual, uh, multi-annual uh, finance framework about to be negotiated again for the next period. 2020. Where are we? 2020. 2027. 20 yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, it's it's almost around the corner. I mean, do you expect any major problems or of you know classic fights between member states about their share of the how, first of all how much money should the budget part of the budget should go to the TAP and, and then the national allocation of that budget well
1: I suppose like every government there's always a row about money and there's right. always a never enough in order to meet the insatiable demands of some government departments, and the same is the the case here where agriculture now and cohesion policy share about 70% of the funding funding between them, that they will come under pressure to give a little bit more here and there for whether it's other priorities like security and migration, defense, broadband, all of these issues are hugely important. Research. So again, of course, we're going to have a battle and I expect that in the uncertain world we are around our finances arising from Brexit and arising from the contributions that the other member states wish to put into the European Union budget in the future, uh, that we're going to
0: have a difficult negotiation. Can you give any indication then, I mean, uh, we're in 2018, as I said, about the sort of modernization of, 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 of a farming policy. I don't mean modernization of farming, you know, mm-hmm. and technology and farming, but how is the, the CAP coming up to speed in the, in the, in the 21st century to make it a, a policy which it keeps up with the times?
1: Well, we have a market orientated policy, so that will continue. Uh, we have to make sure it continues to be competitive vis-a-vis our other uh, partners around the world who are becoming more and more competitive as well, so we have challenges ahead. And we have to be mindful of them. we have to arm our farmers then with risk management tools to be able to deal with all of the price volatility, to be able to help more young people to get into the business, to be able to mo- mo- d- you know help them to get into digital farming, vertical farming, all of the new modernization that's required in order to bring us into the 21st century mm-hmm. and of course, or small and medium-sized farmers, we want to make sure that they're not left behind in this agri-tech revolution. We have to give them a little bit of financial support, in the initial stages at least, in order to do that. And of course we need more young people and therefore we need to promote uh, in a preferential way the opportunities for young people to get into agriculture.
0: But it is seen, isn't it, rightly or wrongly, that that farming is not a a young person's profession anymore. People, even in your country, Ireland, people, Mm -hmm. it's not something they think of when they leave school or unless they inherit maybe their family farm or something. Mm -hmm. So how do you get young people to get back into the idea of farming as a vocation and a way of life?
1: Well, it's not as sexy as it used to be because, as you rightly point out, they have other options. Young people are much more educated now across the the board in terms of their disciplines and skills, and therefore they have options in the cities. Uh, But we have to look and see how we can help our young people to take a greater interest in agriculture in spite of all the risks uh, that's, that's there and weather, but equally they may become more and more attached to getting involved in agribusiness. The value added from agriculture, uh, and I mentioned one of them earlier, the bioeconomy, mm-hmm. how do we get more value added from primary production? And this may be an interesting phase for young people to become um, you know, not just farmers, but, but business people as well associated with food. And that's the way we are, we are looking at things at the moment in terms of giving renewed vitality to our rural areas. OK.
0: Well, if the UK is to leave the European Union either next year or whatever, or sometime at the end of its so-called transition period, that's going to obviously leave a big gap in the, in the EU budget. How much of a headache is it for a commissioner like you, which is responsible for a big chunk of the budget, the fact that there won't be any longer to, to rely on the UK contribution to the EU budget?
1: Yeah, obviously, uh, th- these are the facts. The £12 billion is what the, is what the niche... Deficit would be to the European budget arising from the UK leaving. Uh, it's another £12 is what is required by the other by many member states in relation to other policy areas around security, migration and defence. Uh, so these are all priorities for many member states as well. So you can, ima- you can imagine the pressure ima- uh, is, is on agriculture imagine, and cohesion yeah. policy in order to reduce our budget, in order to make way for some of those issues. And of course we are uh, at the same time looking to see if member states are willing to put some more money into the pot in order yeah.
0: to alleviate some of the problems that we might have in, in meeting uh, our obligations. But this current commission, I'm thinking about the timing now, is due to leave office, as it were, at the, the end, end of next, of next year, year, right? Yeah. Which is more or less the time when you have to do a deal on the multi-annual financial framework. So is it, is it your your hope that you as agriculture Commission will be able to do some kind of deal before you, sh- if you were to step down after well your five years?
1: The, the Prime Ministers, first of all, and the European Parliament have to actually come to a deal on the multi-financial framework, in other words, the budget. And there's a, uh, there's a hope that they may be able to do so before the European elections, oh, okay. this would be a big, uh, a big help. Right, and if that happens, then we might be able to get out at least the first stages of agreement on the agricultural policy for post-2020.
0: Okay. Well, more broadly on Brexit, I, I heard, and you can confirm or deny, uh, Phil, that you uh, joined the uh, the referendum campaign in the UK two years ago. You were, in effect, the only European Commissioner allowed out allowed into the UK to take part in some form in the in the referendum campaign. First of all, is that is that correct? No other Commissioner was was deemed it was deemed appropriate to let any other Commissioner out into the campaign.
1: Well, as was uh, an Irishman, it would always be a welcome in the United Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have
0: a, I have a brother and his family in London,
1: and I have a son in London and okay. uh, therefore uh, many Ireland and the UK are effectively integrated for so many centuries at this stage that it, would be I- 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 it certainly would be uh, unheard of that an Irish person wouldn't be allowed c- into the common travel area. <laughs> so I took advantage <laughs> of that to have a number of debates in the various pr- regions uh, with Owen Paterson and others at various agricultural events. They were very enjoyable and hoped that we provided information. For and I wasn't there to tell anybody how to vote, but today to give the factual position about what was happening, and Owen Patterson was in more campaign mode, of course. Man, when he was, invir- was in in anti-
0: environment Coma- minister, when yeah. he was no, he was an MP at this stage, wasn't, yeah. he wasn't
1: yeah, okay. but, uh, We we were at the Oxford Farming Union conferences, for example, right. in Scotland and Wales and other events, and Stuart Agnew, the MEP, and I had the many debates. So th- they were, th- I thought, they were very well attended and they were very in- interesting uh, from providing information. Uh, but that's, that was my role. But I, I continue to go back to the United Kingdom on a regular basis. I was there last week right. in Edinburgh at the OECD Rural Conference. And I met all of the various farm leaders.
0: Talking about Brexit talking as much as, as your portfolio. Yes, of
1: course I'm going to be asked about Brexit everywhere I go. Or when you go to the United Kingdom or any part in the European Union, this is the big issue. And, uh, you know, I just tell them what the, the situation is as I see it. And also update them in relation to where the process is.
0: Well, you know much better than I do. There's sort of three stages in the Brexit process. There's the so-called withdrawal agreement, there's the transition uh, deal, and there's, of course, the future trading relationship. And the UK government may be slightly guilty of spin, or maybe they may, who knows, they may even feel it sincerely that they sort of... Done, done a deal on a withdrawal bill. They've more or less got an agreement on the transition. All they've got to do now, quote-unquote, is do a deal on the future trading relationship. But as the, your t- as the Irish uh, Prime Minister, the Taoiseach, said recently, there's, there's still no agreement, is there, uh, on, on, the, on the border, the hard or soft border, uh, or no border, between the Republic of Ireland and, uh, and Northern Ireland.
1: Well, we have a political agreement, right, which goes back to the December joint report, where if we're not able to resolve it one way, we have a backstop then where single market and the customs union still apply to the, the island of Ireland. So, of course, uh, you know the United Kingdom are now under pressure, uh, especially from the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, to make sure that option A or option B uh, is actually agreed, because they certainly don't agree with option C, uh, which is effectively uh, the single market and the customs union uh, for the island of Ireland. But I think that uh, there's a lot of intensive activity going on at the moment on both sides to try and find solutions. uh, And I, I expect that there will have to be a solution found, hopefully, by the end of June.
0: Okay, do you, do you feel that the. I know you're here as an impartial European Commissioner, but, you know, all commissioners at the end of the day are, have national agencies as well, if not national passports. I mean, I've, I've seen many senior politicians like you from Ireland, and they've been quite not just upset and angry with the way they've, they feel that the UK have handled the whole Brexit negotiation. The vote, of course, the vote is the vote, but the way they the, the, the UK government has conducted itself since the referendum has left many Irish politicians, uh, some now, still in office, some are now more rec- recently retired, quite angry with the UK. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you get that as well?
1: Well, I think that everybody understands the political arithmetic in Westminster and the mm. difficulties that the Prime Minister has in meeting, meeting all of the objectives from mm. both sides of the argument. It's an impossible position, effectively. But notwithstanding that, I think there's a lack of realisation of times uh, by British politicians towards the importance of the Good Friday Agreement mm. and the peace that that has brought to the island of Ireland and, of course, the peace that it has brought to the islands of Great Britain and Ireland because it affected everybody in those islands, so I think that the sometimes former politicians I know in the 20th anniversary celebrations yeah. recently of the Good Friday Agreement, this came out, where uh, from the United States and from the and from and from the Re- Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, that there's a little bit of frustration about the fact that we have to be very careful that we do not in any way damage the peace sp- the peace process because it was hard won and uh, you know th- i hope that this is certainly centrally in the mind of all of the people that are negotiating it's certainly i'm very impressed with the fact that the 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 chief negotiator on the european union side uh, mr Barnier, is very focused on this and he has a lot of experience from the time he was a structural funds commissioner from his visits to northern ireland and the republic of ireland about the nuances and the political traditions and how different they are of mm. course and how polarized they were for many many years and where he, his funds and the funds from the UK government and the indeed the Irish government were able to bring about a situation where we have a better economic situation a better social situation and a better political situation. It's a pity we had a government in Northern Ireland though. Yeah. It would be very uh, yeah, certainly timely at the moment to be able to deal directly with a government in Northern Ireland and uh, perhaps people could focus more on that as well.
0: Yeah, well maybe one last question then on the specific of the Good Friday Agreement. You, you, you've, I'm sure you've heard that a lot of uh, leading pro-Brexit politicians in Britain have said things to the effect that well the, the Remain camp are overstating the, the importance of the of Good Friday Agreement or if not they're not saying that they're saying something similar along the lines of well the, the good friday agreement has kind of l- outlived its usefulness so, you know we need to move on but what do you say to those kind of
1: i think they don't understand what people have suffered especially in northern ireland in both traditions of unionist and nationalist tradition over many many years particularly all the 3000 people and their families that have suffered enormously with the, uh, with the murder that that took place and the how it wrecked the Northern Ireland economy and indeed had a major impact on the economies of both the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland. So I don't think anybody would would, would welcome politicians' views that we go back to those days. And I'm not overplaying this. I don't think we will go back to those days. But nevertheless, we have to be mindful of this at all times in the context of what we say, what we do as politicians, and also what ultimately the final agreement will be on Brexit. Okay. We have to
0: leave it there. Phil Hogan, thank Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much.